Welcome to the Mormon Marriages Podcast. I am Angeline Bagley. And I am Nate Bagley. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we believe that the most important thing in life is your family, and the backbone of your family is your marriage. So on this podcast, we talk with couples from the church who provide amazing insights into what it takes to create a marriage that will make you look forward to eternity. It would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show, uh, review it on iTunes, and reach out to us if you have any questions, suggestions, or ideas to make it even better. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys. Hi. Today is super awesome because it's our first year anniversary. Well, not our first year anniversary, but our podcast's first year right, anniversary. Right, our podcast's first year anniversary. So this day, February 5th, last year, we launched our very first episode. And it just so happens that the very first episode that we launched was our most popular by episode. Far. By far our most popular episode. Because everybody loves Jennifer Finlayson Fife. She is so wonderful. And if you don't know who Jennifer Finlayson Fife is, then this is a great opportunity for you to go and look at all her. of her stuff. So Jennifer is a fellow member of the church. She lives in Chicago. She is a psychotherapist. Who's she specializes in yep. sexuality. She specializes in sexuality. She did her dissertation on um, sexuality in LDS women. So she particularly knows um, like the cultural issues around sexuality and that a lot of LDS women yeah. um, deal with. So this was a great episode that we recorded with her last year. And has been viewed over 22,500 times. A lot of times. A lot of times. So <laughs> we're really excited to re-air it because there's probably a lot of listeners who have come around in the last year that didn't get a chance to listen to the first episode that we ever recorded. So this is our gift to you. Happy one year anniversary mm-hmm. to us. Here's Jennifer Finlayson Fife. It was really interesting to listen to again because this was literally the first podcast episode I'd ever hosted. Nate had been doing this for many years, but um, I remember how completely nervous I was and I I didn't really know what to say, but it's cool to be able to listen to this episode and then see just how far we've come in a year. So far. Now you're just like a little professional interviewer. It's, I just feel a lot more comfortable. (laughs) Anyways, enjoy the episode. Catch up, catch up with us at the end. We'll talk a little bit about, um, a lot of awesome deals that Jennifer Finlayson Five has going on right now. She has a lot of her Valentine specials and we'll talk about date night. So catch up with us at the end. Enjoy the episode. All right. So welcome to the, this is like the first episode that we've ever recorded at the Mormon marriages Mm -hmm. podcast. Mm -hmm. We're here with Jennifer Finlayson Five, licensed psychotherapist and sex therapist and, or licensed psychotherapist and you practice couples therapy and sexuality. Yes, that's right. Is that a better way to say that? Yes, that's right. Okay, perfect. Um, And you're one of my favorite guests to ever talk to. And I'm not saying that to suck up to you because you're on the show. (laughs) Because I really, like, we, uh, my wife and I, like, make it a habit to listen to your other podcasts and read your articles because we're newly married and we like learning this, this kind of stuff. Yeah. So Great. thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, you're in town mm-hmm. right now. We got to interview you because you were just down here doing a workshop, right? Yes. Will you tell us a little bit about what you were teaching? Sure. Uh, so it's called the Art of Desire Workshop. And um, 
So I do online courses for LDS couples, and also I do a women's sexuality uh, course called The Art of Desire. And um, and so I am here specifically because I'm going to be re-recording the online course. And so I did it this last weekend. I'm going to do it again in a few days when it's actually being recorded. Cool. But I am actually considering doing the live workshop more uh-huh. because it's... Um, it's a different experience than the recorded experience. Being in the room is something really yes. cool. So what's the, what kind of stuff do you cover? In- so I, um, it's really interesting because uh, it's a two-day workshop. It's called, you know, it's about desire, and it has to do with desire in your life in general, but also around sexuality. And so I would say that what the workshop is is, if, is I am taking people into a paradigm shift. I'm talking to women specifically about how to to look at their faith themselves and their sexuality from a slightly different angle in which they have a much better chance of being able to solve some of the challenges that they confront. So one of the first things I say is that, you know, that many women that are there have been trying to solve a problem and they're doing it from a meaning frame in which it's impossible to solve it. And that we have this really amazing theology and that if you look at it from a slightly different angle, you can really see a pathway forward for your own expansion as a person, for your higher desires to really play a role in your life and to really how to uh, integrate your sexuality in a meaningful way in your life and in your marriage. Yeah. What do you mean by a meaning frame? Well... You know, meaning frames, you know, when I was an undergrad and in grad school, I really was drawn to philosophy. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly psychology and and counseling, but I cared a lot about the paradigms that we use for making sense of things. And a paradigm is basically a meaning frame in which you kind of have basic assumptions about how things function and how things are. And we we as human beings create meanings even when we don't know we're doing it. Mm. It's, it's specific to being human. We have a neocortex and we are meaning makers. So we're always creating narratives and stories that help us make sense of our lives. Right. And sometimes those stories are very helpful and sometimes they're very unhelpful because, but the better that they account for reality, the more helpful they are. Right. The truth is a virtue. I mean, the truth hurts sometimes, but the truth helps you deal with your life well. And I think it's at the foundation of our spiritual development. So oftentimes we have a meaning frame that accounts for some of what's going on, but it doesn't account well for all. It doesn't so, account well for what's going on, and so, like so we an get stuck in it. Could be like uh, like we keep arguing over the same stuff, so maybe we're not meant to be together. That could be a meaning. That or, exactly would be a meaning frame because we're arguing. It's our first year of marriage, and we have conflict. We have obviously chosen the wrong person. That is um, inferring a meaning frame that happy people that are going to be happily married don't have conflict, and or that conflict is the measure of whether or not you um, have chosen the right. Okay. Person. Or like mm-hmm. another one uh, that maybe you might cover more in, in this specific course would be like, if I have difficulty orgasming, there's something wrong with me. Right. My body's broken in some way. Right. Right. I'm not a full woman. That yeah. some and uh, you know and therefore I have to figure out how to have one in order to feel like I am not broken. That's a meaning frame that you will never succeed within. Right. <laughs> and so I am talking to people about why you won't ever succeed in that meaning frame. I shouldn't say you won't ever, but it right. makes it very difficult, difficult, right? Yeah. And it's so not I'm the best framework to operate on no, to get the results exactly. that you want. That's in right. Relationship. That's right. And so I. 
um, you know, I care very much about the gospel. I care very much about um, our progression as people, and I care very much about people's happy relationships. And so I have thought about this a lot in my life. And, um, and so I, and I care very much about women's peace of mind and their integration with their God-given sexuality, because that non-integration that many people suffer with is bad for women's psyches and souls, not to mention their marriages. And um, it's the false traditions that have often infiltrated our theology that create meaning frames that keep us stuck. Mm. Let's, can we talk about that, the false traditions that have entered our, our theology? Uh, you, you mentioned something a minute ago, uh, just like a few seconds ago, you said our God-given sexuality, and I don't think that that's something that we really talk about very openly mm-hmm. uh, in, in Mormon culture, mm-hmm. that our sexual desires and our sexuality mm-hmm. is God-given. Can, mm-hmm. can we talk a little bit about how Mormonism um, and sexuality kind of fit together? Yeah. So here, I'll give you the meaning frame I think that many of us have inherited that I think is problematic, and then one that I think has more possibility in that it. That sounds great. Yeah. So the meaning frame that I think is problematic is the idea that sexuality is a necessary evil. And, and, and that is to say that sexuality is Satan's pathway into our hearts. And sort of the more sexual you are, the more you're at risk for, you know, Satan taking over your soul. And, and this sex- is for both men and women, right? For men and women, I think we believe this. And sexual feelings are, are a threat. You know, if you're a 15-year-old and you look at something, you have sexual feelings, we're, we're afraid that's Satan's pathway. And so we really, we have in like an arm's length, you know, a, a, a distanced relationship to sexuality, like we kind of should have it and it should be a part of marriage and somewhere it's supposed to be this glorious, wonderful thing, but be super duper careful, okay, <laughs> because we're really kind of afraid of it. And I think that's not Mormon framing, not the best in our theology, because our theology is one that is, that the body is like our parents in heaven. And we are embodied like our parents in heaven, and our sexuality is implicit to that embodiment. And so we are inherently sexual beings like our parents in heaven, and that the body is necessary for our spiritual progression, for our development as people. So sexuality is not an impediment. It's part of the process. And I don't think of sexuality as Satan's pathway. Satan, we do evil. We're good at doing evil. Natural man is about our evil proclivities, and we can do it through our sexuality. We can do it through non-sexuality. We can do it by repressing sexuality. There's a lot of different ways to be evil. Yes. Just look around. There's a lot of ways to be evil. And sexuality can be one of them, but that doesn't make sexuality evil. That's exactly right. And so a lot of times we, we say that the sexuality has made the person evil rather than the person has used their their darker pro, uh, tendencies and expressed it through their sexuality. The man and yeah, and used their sexuality to express those darker in, uh, things. So I am looking to uh, talk to people about that our sexuality is a part of our progress, this integration of, of accepting our beautiful God-given bodies and doing good in the world. And so I'm also reframing lots of things, but goodness is one of them. But doing good in the world as it how can I be in relationship to my sexuality in a way that creates goodness in my relationships to my to others and as well as to myself. So I feel like we should just take a two minute break and sit here and let some of this sink into people who might have never heard <laughs> this before. This is like a big it's a big thing to swallow if your entire life you've been taught like this is it's bad, yes. it's evil, like you shouldn't be cultivating these desires. Yes. And, 
Uh, and then to have suddenly somebody come along and say, actually, this these like desiring your husband or desiring somebody, desiring to be with somebody, having sexual impulses and and wanting things is is great, and it's it's what we should be doing. That can that I'm I'm, I'm assuming you've probably seen this more than than anybody, but. It can like really rattle somebody's cage. Oh yeah, I was just I just did this two day workshop and somebody who'd never listened to any of my material and I probably should have people oh. listen to me before they show up. <laughs> but at the end of day two, at the end, I said, do people have any comments or thoughts or you know before they leave? And she she was the first one to raise her hand and she said, my mind is blown <laughs> <laughs> because I it is that big paradigm shift and Huge. so you're trying to like you're you're suddenly everything you thought up was down and down is up and you're trying to kind of put it together but the putting it back together in a better way all suddenly opens up a whole new way to experience your life and so well, yeah i mean even so my wife is here you can say mm-hmm. hi hi you've been very quiet for the first part of yes, the podcast which is okay listening. <laughs> um but we're newlyweds you know we've been married for about a year and even just going through the the adjustment of having a non-sexual relationship uh to us like a sexual relationship has been a bigger adjustment than we thought because mm-hmm. you know we did a lot of preparation beforehand uh uh, Angeline took your course. Right. I went through your course. We um, have listened to lots of podcasts. We read books together. I've been doing lots of podcasting stuff, and, and we like. We You're more students. prepared than normal. Yeah, yeah we than, going than many blind. couples. Yes, and mm-hmm. we still. Uh, it was a. It was a, an adjustment sure. for us. Sure. Um, and so I'm assuming when people get exposed to this stuff. In a, newly, especially if they've been embedded in in uh, certain habits in their marriage for decades, uh, this could be a, a big transition. Yes, um, definitely. Well, and I'm actually really grateful for your course because I went to the art of, like Nate said, I went to the Art of Desire course. It was two weeks or so before we got married, and I relate a lot to what you were saying before about the meanings. When I was younger, I was more afraid of my sexuality to the point where I would try and turn it off or just avoid it at all costs and being able to go to your core conceal don't feel (laughs) right (laughs) Right. but and just feeling a lot of guilt and shame around even having those feelings right but going to your course it was nice to have that paradigm shift of having it be a positive thing not be afraid of it and it really set a good foundation for it for our marriage yeah and even though we still have a lot to learn and we're still navigating a lot of things it was an awesome foundation great i'm so glad to start out on yeah and you're not unlike many women who have you know come to me in therapy and talk about that they made a decision at a certain point to shut it down Mm -hmm. you know it wasn't that the feelings weren't emerging they just felt that the feelings were evil and wrong and so out of a desire to do right they pushed this god-given part of themselves Mm -hmm. down hoping that upon marriage this would be reawoken and in full form and doesn't go that way. <laughs> so, right. What are some what are some good practices or mindsets to to take for men and women who actually want to start cultivating this type of um, God-given sexual desire? Like what if, what if we've got somebody listening right now who maybe for the last several years they've been married, maybe several decades and um, they're getting exposed to this idea and they're like, okay, well, if I've been shutting myself down for so long, what, what, and what, what can I do to open myself yeah. up? Well, I think you have to, first of all, believe that there's maybe two pieces to think about. I think that um, 
the idea that our sexuality runs us rather than we run our sexuality is the first idea you have to get straight about in your mind. Mm. Because if you think your sexuality is going to run you, then it's best to keep it repressed. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> because um, if it's just the id, you know, meaning the sexual impulse is going to run your life, well, then it's probably going to run it into the ground. The reality is we, we teach that idea sometimes. That's, that's why it's Satan's pathway. But we always make decisions. Okay? Even those of us that feel very, very sexual have lots of sexual feelings. You always make decisions around what you're going to do around your impulses and feelings, and you're responsible for those decisions. So if you can trust... So, so I think there's two pieces. What I'm talking to people a lot about is being high-integrity people, really being invested in making decisions that are good for the people around them and good for their own development, or making decisions around their sexuality that are going to create the outcomes that they really desire, like the capacity to be in a loving, intimate marriage someday down the road if they're single, or in the marriage to be able to create that within the marriage. And so you know, the impulses and feelings will come because you are biologically and, you know, your divine inheritance is to be a sexual being. There's nothing wrong with those feelings, Mm -hmm. but making decisions about how you direct them and what you choose in the face of them is really entirely around self-respect, respecting others and what you're trying to create out of your life, given your sexual nature, as well as you know, all the other things that matter to you in your life. So I think that, you know, if you can trust in yourself in that way and trust that you, you know, you want to, that you can trust that this is an important part of being human, Mm -hmm. that I can accept and allow myself to know these feelings um, and trust that you will make decisions in line with what you hope to create or achieve. That's an important mindset because then it allows you to start becoming more aware and not so terrified of your sexuality and allows you to create something meaningful and good with your sexuality. You know, what happens when we're so terrified all the time is we do one of two things, in my opinion, and this is what we see in the church a lot because a lot of people are afraid that sexuality is an evil part of them, that you do either repression, right, like what you're Mm -hmm. talking about where you push it all down, Mm -hmm. or you do indulgence, And so that's the sort of pornography thing that we're always talking about, you know, because neither when you're afraid of something, you can't integrate it. And by integrated, I mean, come to accept your sexuality as a part of being human and also integrity that you, you integrate it with your moral beliefs and that integration of this biological part of being human and integrating it with what you believe is true and good and fair and right is really, really important to being capable of an intimate marriage. Mm. And when you're afraid of it, you interfere with your ability to do it. And so you'll either repress it or indulge it or some of both. You'll white-knuckle indulge, white-knuckle indulge. And mm-hmm. it does not prepare. It's, it, we, we as, a, as a, in our faith, can do better than what many of us do because we hand down false traditions because of our own lack of development. And so many well-intentioned teachers and leaders can say things sometimes that create anxiety or create the very problem that then we expend a lot of energy trying to solve. And again, we're, we're stuck in a paradigm that doesn't help us move out of it. So what does it look like to integrate our sexuality into our relationship? Like what's, can you give it a good, a good example of an integrated? Well, I would say, you know, when marriage in my view is in its core, a sexual contract, 
it's a sexual relationship and I'm not cheapening it. I'm making, I'm, I'm making it lofty by saying that. That is to say, you know, other relationships are biological. They're not chosen. Marriage is a chosen love relationship and it's a chosen sexual relationship. That is that I choose to bring my sexuality to you and you to me and to bless each other's lives through our sexuality. That, you know, an intimate marriage is I want to know and be known and to love you fully with my body and to be loved by you fully. And so that is a real commitment, a beautiful commitment that pressures our development as people, Mm. if you're really going to live up to that. Now, many of us don't live up to it. Many of us then get uncomfortable about our sexuality, or we don't really feel like loving that person because they're really bugging us. And so we will make moves to basically get ourselves off the hook, but pressure the other person to live up to their half of the deal <laughs> while we uh, give ourselves a pass on our half. Right. So, so bless. But if you're really going to bless a marriage and really live up to your promise, it means you do need to develop your sexuality, and you need to develop your capacity to love, and you need to learn to love courageously with through your sexuality as well as in other ways of course but that you really love the whole person it's what we all long for you know when we're babies we are loved you know you, you know the rolls of fat you have a newborn and you just kiss every inch of their adorable bodies and they don't have to do anything they just you know bang their spoon and and, and throw food and you swoon and you know I wish somebody would have kissed my rolls of fat <laughs> exactly exactly and then you start growing up and you know and People start clothing you more and creating more distance, as parents should, because, right. you know, you, you want that natural autonomy that's happening. It becomes, you know, your accept, um, your your worthiness or your sense of being acceptable is more conditional. It's based more on what you do. And so a lot of us still long for that high level of acceptance of the whole self. And marriage in its best form is when you develop yourself enough to fully grant that to another person and to receive it yourself and to really love someone all the way through through your sexuality. It's a so, wonderful thing. It's like the it's the high it's heaven on earth. You paint a beautiful picture. Yeah. And the reality of it is it's not easy. It isn't what easy. I, what, I make, right. what I'm living right now. I, I like mean, that you mentioned it it pushes our development. Yes. I've been talking a lot lately about how marriage is for growth. Yes. It pushes us to be our best selves. Yes. It also expands our comfort zones. Yes. And at times that can be a little scary, uncomfortable, painful. painful. Yes. It can cause a lot of anxiety. No question. And I think sometimes people bump into that when it comes to their sexuality where they get anxious and it's not comfortable. And so they, instead of leaning into that discomfort, right. they, Lean out. they, yeah, they bow out and they decide it's not worth it. And so I think... I like that you bring that up because it's important to allow ourselves to feel that discomfort to come out better on the other side. That's right. And so what do I need to learn or what is it that's going on? You know, I think when you run into pain in your marriage, as you're saying, it's so easy to just say there's something wrong with my marriage or something wrong with my spouse um, and to go look for comfort. And then we will suffer more if we do that as opposed to what can my marriage teach me? What is my marriage pressuring on me? What do I need to confront in myself? If I'm feeling pressure right now in my marriage, what am I like? What do I need to do to grow? Yes, to be able to deal with that pressure and that exactly. Can I use this pain to teach me something? Right, right. And you know, I I my oldest child is on the autism spectrum, and so he can say things that are sometimes in 
incredibly to the point and incisive and funny at the same time. But he said, the reason for getting a spouse is so that they can find ticks and moles on your back. (laughs) (laughs) And it's profoundly true for me because, you know, it's our character, it's our character ticks and moles, the ones we can't see in ourselves that often marriage exposes because your spouse can see them and feels them, your limitations, the things that you think, hey, I'm just being a great person and somehow you don't adore and love me. And, um, and oftentimes we'll want to, you know, shoot the messenger, take the spouse down a notch because they're telling us we're not as great as we want to believe. And when we're humble and courageous and willing to really be honest and face ourselves, that's where all the freedom is because then you can, you can deal with what your limitations are and offer a kinder, better person to yourself and to your spouse. You have more peace in being living up to your own values and expectations and and more peace in the marriage. You know, you get you breathe the air that you, you know, you pollute the air that you then breathe if you won't deal with yourself. You get to live in the environment that you create. Right. And so it's it can be very helpful to just understand it's a meaningful pain and it can be very helpful to say, what can I learn about myself as much as I don't want to (laughs) in this current challenge? I think it's also really helpful to have an honest view of your spouse, not just yourself. Sometimes we don't want to deal with what we see in our spouse because we want a nicer spouse than the one we married. And so sometimes we will also do things where we'll not only self-deceive about our own issues, we'll self-deceive around what's going on on their side. Um, and sometimes try and create something, that, you know, we'll co- couples can often collude in not dealing with troubles. Right. And so they sort of paint a rosier picture, but then troubles are festering under the surface. Mm-hmm. And then those so come back to get you. They don't want to address it. Exactly. So a lot yeah. of times people have very polite marriages, but not intimate ones and not passionate ones. Right. One of my pet peeves is um, measuring the quality of a marriage by the length of time that they've been together. Yeah, right. And I feel like two people being able to survive on living under the same house for 25 years, I mean, that's great yeah. for them, but that, that doesn't necessarily yeah. equate to quality. No, definitely. And uh, I, I think, I don't, I don't, yeah, let's, can we talk a little bit more about that? Sure. About what, what equates to... Um, quality. Quality over... What I think is how much two people can really truly be themselves and be with one another. That is a wonderful measure of a good marriage, yeah. that people want to belong to other people. They want to belong to another person, but we want to belong to ourselves as well. Mm-hmm. It's two things we want. And when you're dating, you think you're going to have that because everything you like, you know, the person who's attracted to you and trying to win you over is right. telling you that everything you like is just awesome, okay? <laughs> and you're telling them the same thing because this is the courting stage, of course. But then once you get in marriage and you're trying to work out your own life, you don't want to do everything that your spouse right. wants or vice versa. And so where it pressures you is can we create a marriage in which there's room for the two of us, that the best in two of us can be here? Because often what happens is somebody's limitations, they try to basically be, they want their limitations to prevail in the marriage. 
and they want the other person to defer to them. And often there's that kind of power struggle. Can you give an example of that? Sure. Well, let's say let's say that somebody just spends too much money. So they get married and one of them wants to spend and they don't want to be accountable to the marriage or to their shared goals. They just want what they want. And so then when their spouse confronts them on it, they start acting like they're being victimized by their spouse's opinion and view and desire. And so what they do is they start acting like a victim and you're hurting my feelings and don't I get to have anything that I like and I feel so trapped and and my parents were so controlling and you're going to control me too. And so they get the other person guilted into submission. Mm. And so it looks like a virtue when that person stops complaining about the over expenditures, but it's not a virtue because it's more about the anxiety of the other person's criticism and pushback. And so you arrange a marriage in which the person's limitations are prevailing and they are undermining the marriage. And so it looks peaceable because maybe they're not fighting. But there's anger and resentment and an inability to, to make space for two people, hmm. meaning a, a marriage for two people would be like, okay, you like spending and I like saving, okay? How are we going to handle ourselves that we don't, you don't feel like you can't ever get anything you want and I don't feel like there's never any money in the bank? How do we work this out? Because we've got to make room for both of us. And that would be a couple that would be trying to really create a marriage. That's a great example. Yeah. I feel like there there is a fantasy of kind of like when you were talking about the the courting phase of of being kind of like fused together as one mm-hmm. one being mm-hmm. and and not having separate not being separate from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see do you see that happen a lot uh, like where like people are almost distressed because they aren't living this fantasy where like every waking moment they're spending together or they don't mm-hmm. share the same desires all the time mm-hmm. or yeah i definitely think in early marriage too that can be particularly uncomfortable because there was that eye to eye phase of the relationship where you're just just want to look at each other and <laughs> and while <laughs> your it. heart palpitates and not notice anything else in the entire world <laughs> yes and then when it's time to sort of start building a life your and, eyes are the only world i need yes exactly <laughs> exactly and so then when you have to start actually building a life or, you know, each have their own endeavors and so on, there can be distress, especially if you use the validation of another person to sustain your own sense of self. Mm. And we all do this. We all start doing this. I feel like you need to say that again. Sure. If you use the validation of other people. Yes. Thanks for slowing me your down. your own sense of self. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I, I'm so a, used to these ideas. I say them too. But yes, when you use huge. someone else's approval, you use someone else's proximity, you use someone else's presence to sustain your own sense of self. And many of us do this and we want that. And so we don't really want the other person to belong to themselves because we don't know how to be with ourselves. Mm. And so in the name of love, we can sometimes suck the life out of our spouse or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And and I can see how that could show up in every aspect of, of relationship. Um, Whether it's like, always wanting one partner to be the initiator when it comes to sex, mm-hmm. whether it's always wanting somebody to be the one who's asking the other person out on a date, mm-hmm. whether it's, I mean, there's... Yes. You, you validate me through your desiring me. Validate right. me by wanting me when I want to be wanted and, mm-hmm. you know, and also validate me by not wanting me when I don't want to be wanted right. sexually or whatever. You know, they, I want you to just come and reinforce me. That's how many of us get married and it's designed to fail. It won't sustain itself because you didn't marry a robot. You married a person who wants to belong to themselves also. 
and it's an inherent tension in human relationships, but it's a tension that drives our spiritual evolution. Right. That's why marriage is a divine So uh, even if you get married for the wrong reasons, you can stay married for the right reasons. You, exactly. Well, you can turn them into the right reasons and create the right reasons where you really do choose the other person, not for how they're going to serve you, but you choose to love this person, limitations and all, and really invest your best in that person and not use their limitations to justify your own. So can we talk a little bit about breaking that bond of using somebody else's validation mm. for your own self-worth? And sure. and maybe instead, um, my guess is that the alternative is learning to validate yourself. Right. So let's, let's I mean... For example, let's say somebody's been in a marriage where for the last several years that's they've been thriving on the validation of their partner to give them self-worth, to give them purpose, to give them um, meaning. Mm-hmm. What what switch needs to flip to start assigning that meaning and that validation to themselves? What's that yeah. journey look like? So, you know... Um, this weekend in the workshop, I, you know, sometimes questions will come up and I'll talk to people a little bit about what's going on in their marriages and so on. But um, in one situation, there, she was just talking about the fact that she had chosen motherhood in some ways as a kind of um, escape from having to really craft her own life, not really as a deliberate and conscientious decision. Right. And she had also... It's so like she easy default setting. Yeah, like it got cultural validation um, and she did choose it, but she wasn't really choosing it out of clarity or strength, which isn't to say that she wouldn't have chosen it that way if she could go back in time. It was just more default. And then she saw her husband sort of having more and more career success and feeling a sense of that her life was not as was not equal or as meaningful. As purposeful. As purposeful. And so she'd pressure him for validation, and he would say, you know, how much he appreciated her mothering and what she did and all this, and give all the right words. And it it would not land anywhere meaningful because she didn't feel it in her own heart. And I think when we do that, women get depressed and frustrated and don't have a self from which to love. And so, so for this woman, she was recognizing, I need to confront my own life and think about what I need to choose that I could more deeply respect. What do I need to start developing and creating in my life that I have more of a sense of self that exists outside of my spouse's validation? Because as you see in this story, her desire and need for his validation was ruining the marriage, was undermining it deeply. And the way she was coping was making her feel worse about herself, even though she wasn't really admitting it to herself or seeing it until this weekend um, and when we talked about it. We are complicated creatures. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. We're good at self-deception. Now, that is what Nate, that is Satan's path, is our self-deception. Because when deception, you know, the truth sets you free. Right. The truth, the part they edited out is it makes you miserable, then it sets you free. <laughs> and we're really good at hiding that truth, aren't That's we? right. And because we don't because like we don't that discomfort, we yeah. are very we collude in our self-deception and in deceiving each other. Man. And that's where we don't grow. I even look at the last year of marriage for us and one of the things if we can kind of are you you're you're okay with me sharing this. Yeah, but um like just one of the things that we've been struggling with in this regard is is my ability to uh, what we've been calling self-soothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so Angeline from time to time gets anxious about stuff. She'll mm-hmm. get stressed out. And um, early on in our marriage, I saw it as a direct reflection on my 
capacity as a husband. Take it personally. I would right. take it very personally. I'm like, oh, she's anxious. She's stressed out. I'm not doing a good enough job at like protecting her from the s- struggles of the world and mm-hmm. life or, or mm-hmm. I'm the one who's contributing to making her feel anxious. And I'd start freaking out and I'd start feeling anxious. Right. And then I would blame my anxiety on her anxiety. And my way to deal with it was to try and fix her problem. Right. Because she's the one who had the problem, not me. Right. So I was blind to the truth that Hey Nate, like you, your problem is that you also get anxious when you don't have control. When I don't have control, Mm -hmm. and so um, we've just done a lot of reflection and we've talked about it a lot. And one of the things that we're, I'm personally really working on right now, is realizing that when I start to feel anxious, it's my job to take care of myself. Yes. And when she starts to feel anxious. It has no bearing or reflection on my cap- capacity as a husband. Right. And that I can trust her to take care of herself without me having to do it for her. Right. And that if she needs something, she can ask. Right. And it's been a struggle. Yes. Like, it's 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 a struggle. It, it was a lot easier to avoid that truth and just blame my wife every Definitely. time I was feeling anxious right. than it was to confront <laughs> Which I'm sure myself. helped her anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> it just made it worse. Exactly. But, but like actually going through that discomfort of, of like going, okay, Nate, the thing that you're feeling right now, it's not your wife's fault. Right. It's your responsibility. You need to learn to breathe. Right. You need to learn to take a step back and go for a walk. Right. You need to learn to count backwards from 10. Whatever you need to do to calm yourself down. Right. And figure out that it's all going to be okay. It's right. your job. That's right. And I'll say one more thing about it is that it sounds like you were trying to manage Angeline to manage yourself, exactly. which is what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but it's distracting you from not only the self-soothing that you're speaking to, but also what is my responsibility if any, in her distress. Right. Right. So it's like... Am I perpetuating it? Right. Exactly. Am I contributing to it? Exactly. And or is part of the anxiety actual things that I do? I don't need to get her to calm down so I feel fine. I need to actually deal with my own behavior if I do play a right. role. And so a lot of, we're very good at controlling or trying to control what we have no control over, which is each other. Mm-hmm. And we use that attempt to, to distract from exactly. what we do have control over, which is our own behavior and the the impact we have on others and ourselves. So now when Angeline gets anxious, instead of going, do you want to talk about it? Let's talk about it. What's going on? What's wrong? What's <laughs> happening? What's, why, why are you so upset? Why are you frustrated? What did I do? It's Now it's like, do you, are, you, are you doing okay? Do you need anything? And she'll say, mostly it's just, I just need a minute. I need a minute. And I go, great. Let me know when you're ready to talk. And then I walk away and mm-hmm. I self-soothe. And mm-hmm. she knows that I'm there if, if she needs me. Sure. I'm not, I'm trying not to be overbearing and a fixer and like, right. and we're starting to find that balance of like, okay, now I'm learning what I'm responsible for. I'm right. learning and I'm learning how to manage myself and vice versa. And that one little thing has made a massive impact. And yep. it just makes me realize how many other millions of little blind spots that I have yes. that I haven't been exposed to yet that I'm going to have to confront in my marriage. Yep. And that to me has kind of come to represent when everybody talks about marriage as hard work, like that to me is what the hard work yeah. is. Absolutely. It's one of the kindest things you can do in your relationship is to manage yourself to calm yourself down. It's, mm-hmm. you know, when sometimes if my daughter's getting really anxious, anxiety is very infectious. You know, you it can is. catch people's anxiety and you start trying to like manage others to manage the anxiety that you feel and so on. And, you know, with my daughter, if I feel her getting anxious, one of the kindest things I think I can do for her is to not go in and try and solve it or solve her, just calm myself down and be a place where she can sort of map my calm mm. and she can sort of, 
you know, struggle within herself in the face of, of, a, of a peaceful environment in being connected to me or in a conversation with me. And so just learning that work of calming yourself down is one of the kindest things you can do for the people you love. It's beautiful. And I think it goes back to what you're saying about the personal integrity, owning your own actions, owning your own behaviors, your own desires. Right. When you're feeling those feelings of anxiety, the first thing you want to do is blame somebody else for yes. them. But you can, you should and could turn inward, look at maybe what you're doing to contribute, what you can change, what you can grow, what you need to learn, and ultimately that helps both Absolutely. parties. Yeah, one of the questions I ask myself or tell you know people in the courses to ask themselves is, what am I pretending not to know about my role in these circumstances? Mm. Mm. Because we do a good job of as you're saying, Angela, focusing on what someone else is doing and putting the blinders onto ourselves. And, you know, again, what am I pretending not to know? Like, look at me. What would it be like to be in relationship with me right now? What would I be annoyed at, at me, in me? <laughs> and being having the courage to actually take a look at yourself through someone else's eyes and, and face what you don't want to see. It's a scary and confronting thing. Yeah. I think and and now having a better understanding of what it means to be in a sexual relationship, I can see how the um risk factor or the severity of that of taking that chance goes up in that type of relationship. Absolutely. Something yes. that's been a struggle for us that we're working on is owning our own desire when it comes to sexuality and then asking for what we want. Yes. Sexually. Yes. Um I Absolutely. think before we were scared about coming across as selfish or scared as coming across as, as taking. When I feel like when you own your own desires, it kind of, you both go on this journey. Yes. Kind of, instead of always worrying about what the other person is thinking or worrying what they're wanting, if you can own your own desire and Put voice it. your desire, it, creates a better experience. It does. And I think it allows the couple to actually deal with it more openly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of times in the name of goodness, we'll do what I think you're pointing to is that we just, you, you kind of want the other person I just to, want you to be happy. Well, we do that whole crazy thing, which is as in, I want you to be happy, but then because I'm being such a nice guy, I want you to come in and make me happy. Right. <laughs> and, and so we co- do the covert contract. Yeah. If I do this for you, you'll yes. probably do it for me. Right. That's right. And that you better kind of, or else I'm going to be sulking and resentful, you know? Right. So we, we do these kind of covert ways of trying to look like, Oh, don't worry about me, but I really do hope you worry about me. And if you don't, I'm going to be right. upset. Instead of like, can I just lay claim to what I really desire? Now, I always say to people, you know, you want to bring your higher desires to your marriage. That is, you want to filter it through your own integrity and your own sense of decency rather than trying to get everyone around you to just do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. That you say, like, if you're standing up for something you think is valuable and important to you and in the marriage that you say, you know, I would like this. That's very different than saying you must give it to me. Mm-hmm. But it's, it is an act of intimacy to own what it is that you desire. You run the risk of not getting it. You do. That, that's, that's true vulnerability. Yes. I feel like... It's uh, true intimacy. It's true exposure of yourself. Yeah. One of my... So I really love um, Terry Reel's book, The New Rules of Marriage. Mm-hmm. And one of the rules that has... One of the things from his book that I have never forgotten, I just say to myself all 
over and over again is you're not allowed to complain about not getting something that you never asked for. Yes. And he talks about how complaining is just a double negative to your partner. It's like, I'm going to punish you for not giving me the thing I never asked for. Right. Exactly. And and I'm really upset with you that you didn't give me this thing that I never told you I wanted. Exactly. And, um, and the only thing that you can really do in that your partner can do in that situation is apologize. You're not setting them up for success. You're not giving them anything that they need to make you be a good partner. And, um, the flip side of that, instead of complaining is just asking for what you want, but that, but it's much more exposed. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it's so hard is that it exposes you. It exposes, exposes you to what you really want. And not only that, but it exposes you to the opportunity, to the possibility of not getting it of your partner saying no. That's right. And then you have to confront those emotions. That's right. Rather than just Just sit around in an, an entitled resentment. Right. You know, it's how many of us go. It's just an easier way. It's like, you owe me. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to actually claim what I want. You just owe me. Right. And, um, it, and yeah, it's exposing to say what you desire. Right. And I, it's one of the things I talk about in the workshop a lot is that we have difficulty taking responsibility for our desires yeah. in our life. It's a very human thing. I mean, that's natural, man. But when we won't take responsibility for our desires, we stunt the development of our marriage and of ourselves. I think that's an important thing to think about. Yeah. Maybe people listening right now can think about whether or not they're getting what they really want out of their marriage. And if they're not, and there's something more that you want, have you asked for it? And what has that asking looked like? You know, has that asked, have you asked for, you know, um, I hesitate to like dive into details, but, yeah. um, well, I think there is, you know, there's, there's asking, right. And there is sometimes the idea that if you ask, then your spouse would just be thrilled to give it to you. And often that's not true either. Right. right? Because there's a lot of times people who do ask or say, sometimes we do it in a complaining, punishing way. Sometimes we do it in a clear headed way. But I think the the way that sometimes I talk about it is not just asking for it, that you're really functioning like someone who is doing their half in creating the possibility mm. of that thing in the marriage. Mm. Because it's one thing to say, I asked for it. You won't give it to me. Like a right. spouse who was saying to me in uh, therapy, you know, I just want more spontaneity and fun and, 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 you know, a sense of passion in the marriage. Okay, well, so what are you doing? And he would talk like a big victim of not having it. But he was really a black hole of happiness. He, he was, was really a black hole. A he would be, sucker. He would, you know, he'd come home from work, and just because she wasn't jumping all over him, he'd go upstairs and sulk. And, like, you're not acting like a man who wants a spontaneous, fun, and, cr- and creative marriage. <laughs> you're acting like a man who feels entitled to it, and you're going to punish your wife if you don't right. get it. So there's no virtue in the fact that you've said it to her a few times, especially in a complaining voice. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's whether or not you are really doing your half and creating it. That would mean being invested in her. Right. Or that would mean coming through the door and acting like you're excited to see her. Okay. What? What a novel idea. <laughs> and, you know, again, we're good at saying what we think we're owed, and we're good at thinking of all the virtuous things we assume that we do that, that we're not being praised for. But we're often not good at really confronting our part in the negative reality that we live in. I just want to have a really passionate sex life, but I want my partner to bring all the passion Absolutely. and Absolutely. Bring it to me. And the sexiness. Adore me and desire right. me at all and times. And if I'm not in the mood, you have to wait. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> bring the passion when I have enough yeah, energy. Exactly. Wouldn't it be great? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's the idea of what can I give my partner to give me what I need. Yeah. So it's like you take responsibility of setting them up for success. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I see what you're saying, that you actually think, like, yes, 
So that is to say, if I really wanted, for this last example, if I really wanted a, a, a wife that was spontaneous and fun, what would be my role in making that easy for her to do yeah. that? Mm-hmm. Am I because, giving my partner everything they need to give me what I need? Yeah, or, or just that I'm doing what would make it an obvious choice. Because when I'm sulking and angry upstairs... right. I mean, she'd probably rather rip her toenails off <laughs> right. than go up and right. be spontaneous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Am I calling ahead and telling her not to bother making dinner because I'm bringing home pizza and we're going on an impromptu date and yeah. we've got a hotel room? and Yeah, that's a man who wants a fun, spontaneous marriage. Right. right. Mm-hmm. I promise not to sulk anymore, honey. <laughs> Jennifer, cra- Jennifer shared all of our deep, dark secrets of our therapy session. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're running uh, down on time here, but is there any last stuff you want to maybe um, a piece of advice or, or anything you want to, the frosting on the cake you want to mm-hmm. leave everybody who's listening? You know, well, I really do think we have in our theology the, the, the architecture of really being able to create amazing marriages because I think the architecture of that is a real acceptance of the body and the notion of eternal progression and the idea of becoming more godly. Mm. And that is that we have the ability to, and, and that we believe in this idea of repentance and change. And I don't mean repentance in this big, like self-hating frame. I mean it in the course correction, that you see what you're doing, the very human, natural things that are hurtful and, and, and low-level functioning. And you push yourself as an act of faith towards a higher way of being, Mm. that you're pushing yourself to love. Love is an action. You come to know God through behavior, not through ideas. And so it's the way you act in your marriage that really is the expression of how much you understand God. It's not what you say at the pulpit. It's how you behave. It's, it's it's, 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 It's how deeply you... It's how much capacity to love you have created within your own soul. That is the measure of your understanding of God. I think that's a perfect way to bring this conversation full circle. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. That was a great way to end it. All right, everybody. We hope you enjoyed listening to that episode for either the first time or re-listening to it again. It was really fun to reminisce. And I know. I liked it. It was really great. Anyways, so... Um, Jennifer Finlayson Fife right now, she has a Valentine's day special going on, um, on all of her online courses. So we will link to her courses on the blog, but go to her website. And from now until Valentine's day, which is next week, all of her courses are 20% off. So it's an awesome deal. We both have taken her courses. We have. We both recommend them. We, I would definitely recommend them. And another awesome thing that we have coming up is next week, we have date night. Date Um, night. So date night is the 15th. It's the day after Valentine's Day. Friday. It's on Friday. Best Valentine's Day gift you can give your partner if you live in the Salt Lake City area. Grab some tickets. Come hang out. Get a magic show. Listen to awesome speakers. uh, Win some prizes. Eat some delicious treats. Possibly win a trip to Disneyland. Right. What? All right. Yeah, our awesome sponsor, Homie, is is giving people an opportunity to win a trip to Disneyland. Yep. So. And tickets are selling fast, so snag them while we got them. Right. Anyways, thanks for sticking us. Bleh. Thanks for sticking with us for the last year. Please leave that blah in. <laughs> Why? Just do it. Fine. 
Thanks for sticking with us. If you've been with us since day one and, and thanks to everybody who's joining us every day, we really enjoy doing this project for you. So, um, follow us, good on, year too. follow us on Instagram. Our goal is to have bi-monthly episodes. We've been a little inconsistent, but our goal is to have two a month. So every other week, every other week. Um, so we'll catch up with the next episode. Thanks guys. Thank you.